Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm your host. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And I am so excited you're here. Thank you so much for listening. Before I introduce this week's guest, I have a big announcement. I updated my website. And yes, this is a really big deal for me and maybe for you too. I have a brand new front page, brand new about page, brand new work with me page, and some new stuff up top and all around, sprinkled all around. And it feels like me. It feels fun. It feels authentic. It feels like play, which is what I want in my business and my life always. I hope you enjoy it. Now, into this week's conversation with Beth Killo. She's a lifelong cowgirl, writer, professor, and a licensed psychotherapist who has over 30 years of experience working with people to awaken their innate leadership gifts so they can live and work with more authentic relationship and connection. She is the owner of the Circle Up Experience, which has a model of natural leadership and experiential learning with horses that integrates human psychology, animal behavior, and natural systems to offer a unique approach to personal and professional development. This approach moves quickly through the rhetoric in human groups and gets the core human issues. She owns Take a Chance Ranch in Morgan Hill, California, where Circle, Hope, Circle Up hosts workshops. So Beth and I talk about a lot of things. We talk about poetry. We talk about animals and animal behavior. And of course, we talk about human behavior. I hope this conversation finds you well. I hope it heals your soul in some way. I hope it nourishes you. I hope it makes you smile. And most importantly, I just want you to know that I love you and that you're doing great. And it's time for you to go forth and be awesome as always. Thank you so much for listening. All right, Beth, I'm so excited. I've had so much fun talking to you before we hit record. I know. I know. This is great. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. So let's start out. You were saying that you started out, well, you got your MFA in poetry and then you taught poetry for years. I did. I did. Poetry First of all, that's my... not like super common. No, it's a very uncommon, <laughs> impractical pathway, I have to say. Um, and when I, when I decided to go that, that route and get that degree, um, my parents had a lot of question marks about what exactly I was going to do with that. Cause there's, you know, not a lot of professional avenues for highly degreed poets. Yeah. It's a narrow path. <laughs> what drew you to poetry? Um, so I've been right. I started writing, reading and writing at a young age, like younger than, you know, like I was, I was reading and writing before kindergarten. So I actually skipped kindergarten because of it. And, um, so when I, I grew up in a, um, really chaotic house household, um, I grew up with uh, a father who left and then a single mom who was getting a PhD and we moved a lot and she was really scrapping to get her world going and our world going. And then we ended up when I was 
five moving in with the man that would become my stepfather into the house that he lived in with a bunch of his buddies. It was called the Mushroom Manor. And we had a flag in the front yard with psychedelic mushrooms on it. And it was like a party house. And this is in the seventies in Michigan. And, um, you know, and that they were hippies. They, my mom was getting a PhD in psychology and he was an architect. And it was like this very 1970s hippie land. And, um, and though I think some of the scenes of that on the outside can look very like pastoral and kind of like peace, love and um, all that jazz. It in the, on the inside, it was a lot of drug abuse and chaos. And so that was, I, I started looking for ways to um, like find a, a private internal space for myself like very early on. And the two places that I went were with my animals and with writing. And so poetry, um, what I loved about poetry is probably like the addict in me loves the intensity of a poem because you've really got to hone in and get efficient and precise and immediate. And then I love the intensity of the emotion that can come through and I've always been a language junkie. So I think that's why I gravitated. And I think there's like a part of me, like the intellectual elitist part of me was like, I'm not just going to write, I'm going to write poems. <laughs> and like, it was like the overachiever in me. Cause po it's really hard. It's a hard art form. But mm -hmm. I, I, I think there was, it was all of those reasons, but I started finding my way into like an internal space for myself. It was like, the animals and poetry were safe places for me to exist that I could not be touched by the outside chaos. And so they were, and they were often went hand in hand. Like I, there was a lot of time spent with the animals writing or writing about the animals. And so that, that was like my safe place. It still is. That's, it hasn't changed. Are you still writing poetry? Yeah, I still write. I, I write more prose now um, for my business and I'm writing a book of essays and, um, but I do still write poetry and I live in poetry. I live looking for paying attention to and looking for these moments that um, have lessons in them or beauty in them or magic in them. And so I very much like, sometimes they end up making their way into a crafted poem. Other times they're in a photograph. Sometimes they're just in like two lines of words, or they're just something that I say out loud to myself or to someone else. But I definitely still like live through a poet's eye and I think actually when I became a therapist and now in the work that I do, that's really working with people and the animals, I'm still using that poet's eye because whatever is happening in the moment has all these layers, just like a poem. Mm, how and would you define a poem or poetry? Whichever is easier. Oh boy. <laughs> that's a whopper of a question. Um, well, I think, I'm wary to define it because I don't, I, I don't want, I don't ever want to define something that's going to exclude some another person's experience of 
writing in that form. And there's so many different forms of poetry. And, um, but I think that um, a poem has certain elements that, that are about efficiency of language and capturing something about the world that has the integration of the emotional, the physical, um, and has something important to say um, and does so in this form that um, calls attention to itself just by, by how unique it is in terms of a form. So it calls attention to, our, to us to stay in kind of this reverence, like a prayer, um, but it could be about anything. It doesn't have to be spiritual, but it is this space that the poet asks the reader to enter into a small journey um, or this kind of dream state or prayer state that calls attention to itself, calling attention to the world. And I think it's, there's an assumption that there's a very deep connection between the writer and the writer's experience of the world just by deciding that to call it a poem. So when a person decides to call something a poem, what they're, they're underlining, highlighting, and shining spotlight on is the thing that I experienced internally and externally were very powerful and they happened together. And so they're, that's when someone decides to call something a poem, I think that that's what they're defining. For someone who didn't know how to define it, I think you just did a fabulous job. <laughs> I probably 20 years ago when I was very much in, entrenched in that world, I probably could have cited like 20 books that are about like poetics and the definition of a poem and like quoted. But that wouldn't have been fun. No, it would have been really unfun. But, <laughs> but, but, not, but it's interesting because my definition of it was probably, it was probably more rigid back then. And now my attention to some, like it's so much more important to me that somebody has an experience of a poem, whether they're writing it or reading it versus it being, I'm using quotey marks, good. Mm -hmm. And, or it being, you know, worthy of that label of, you know, well-written or well-crafted. It's so much more, the experience of it is more important to me now than it was back then. The aesthetic is less important to me now. So how did you move from, from the life of a poet and just like poetry life into therapy life? So there were, I was teaching at a university and I was running a literary center and I was, I was part of creating a graduate program for creative writing an MFA program at that university. And I, you know, the, the poetry, like, like in whether it's people that are in academic poetry, so whether they're in universities or not, um, has had over time, like kind of a, it has like a wild streak. <laughs> so when I found my way into the MFA program, like I found my people and we were in Arizona and we were running around the desert at all hours of the day and we were pretty wild. And, um, and at that time, that was like, it, it was an incredible identity growth for me to move into that space. Um, then when I got this job, 
I, there was definitely pressure for me to professional, like become more professional. And I struggled with that quite a bit. I wasn't ready for that, but I was like, I was really, um, I was, I was struggling with, with how to be in an academic setting in a university, but I was always really connected to my students and my office hours were always full. And like I was describing that emotional space of the poem before, I think that I really encouraged that with my students and let them and invited them to talk about what like and deepen that. And it, and it improved their work, their, their writing, but it started to feel very much like therapy. And I'd been in therapy my whole life on and off. My mom is a clinical psychologist. So when like things seem off throw her in therapy, like that was definitely the, the MO. And so I started questioning whether I wanted to be in like an academic setting. I noticed what I loved, which was the student work and I got curious about it. And so I went and took some clinical psych classes and it like the light bulb started coming on. But I look back on it now and I think I was running. I think I was running away. I think I was running from having to grow up and professionalize myself and like what it was going to take for me to actually be effective in that kind of a job was going to, I was going to have to do some work on myself. I think I was running from that work and from myself. And so I think I, 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 I understand and can make sense of why I went in that direction because of what I was actually doing with my students. But I, I look back now and I think it was for all the kind of wrong reasons. Was it uh, effective? It was effective in, well, I thought, you know, now I can just get paid a lot of money to focus on other people's problems, but it was effective in pushing me against the wall with myself. And so, yes, it was effective in that way. And it, it did finally, it, I thought I was going to get to run from myself, but I actually trapped myself. And so that was effective because it's exactly what needed to happen. It took a little while. I, I, I kept running, <laughs> but <laughs> it took a little while, but it, it did get me there. So yes, absolutely. It was effective. Yeah. And then you had starting from an early age you had animals always were a huge part of your life huge and now they're back or they never left they never left they've always been there the poetry and the animals have always been there but it's been it was always it was like a very private space and so the the whatever i was up to with my animals was my own process. I was always learning with them from them. And, um, but it was never something that I was like doing professionally. So, but they've always been a part of my, my journey. The dogs and the horses have been my most profound teachers. Mm, how so? Um, they're always honest. And so the feedback that they give is very clear and they they have created a space for it to be safe for me to be honest with myself and um and i think the acceptance of 
that that when I can rebalance, you know, this happens like all day, every day, because now I'm like have this whole ranch full of animals that whatever message they're giving me, whatever, you know, whatever feedback they're giving me about myself, I'm used to taking. And I 100% believe that their feedback is honest and accurate. And so I've gotten really efficient at taking it and rebalancing. And it's, it's like the more I immerse myself in that world, the more settled I am as a human. Mm -hmm. And so I've been on that journey of really understanding that language, their language, um, and, and being able to take it in and use it. And, um, so they've just been these incredible teachers and guides and, um, they're like, um, they've been like, they, I'm trying to think of what the word is. It's like they've accompanied or like fellow journeyers, I suppose. That's what it's felt like. Yeah. All the way through. What's the difference in learning from horses versus learning from dogs? Mm, I love that. So, um, horses are prey animals. So they are, um, they are herbivores. They do not hunt. Um, their best defense in survival is sticking together and moving away from pressure or pain or um, discomfort or, or things that are unsafe. Um, and because dogs are predatory animals, they are also foragers like horses. They're omnivores like people are. Um, but they're much, because they have such a hunting drive, um, they're more likely to go into predatory mode when under pressure. And so, um, the, in terms of working with them, the feedback is gentler with the horses than it is with the dogs. And it's actually safer, which is so funny because they're like a thousand pounds or more. And, um, but it is safer and gentler to work with horses than it is to work with dogs. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. They're just a little more unpredictable, um, the dogs <laughs> than the horses. And so are there times when the horses and the dogs are trying to tell you the same thing? And it's like the horse tells you gently and the dogs are like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah, there are times when that, the, the horses, um, their feedback system is, yeah, it's a lot more subtle. And so sometimes I'll miss all of those cues until I get the cues from the dogs. Yep. I think that happens probably weekly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time with my animals together. So the dogs and the horses and the sheep were all in the fields together. Um, are the sheep giving you any feedback? The sheep are terrified of life most of the time. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. And I've had goats in the past and I have the sheep because I do herding with my border collies. And so 
Um, but I'm, I'm, it's very interesting to study them around fear and group fear. And um, they're just, I think their location on the food chain is just makes them incredibly paranoid and afraid and like, and sensitive. So if you want to work on calming yourself, it's kind of like beekeeping with mm-hmm. sheep. Um, so they're, and they're taking in so many different pieces of feedback from the environment because of how fear-based they are, that it's almost impossible to decipher what's coming from me versus what's coming from everything else. They're like the wind blew as well. So now we're terrified we might die. And, um, I know I really try to create an environment for them where they can feel like as safe as possible, but I've learned to, it's like been this great exercise in codependency. Cause I'm like, they just, that's who they are. And like, I can't, can't change that. I can't fix that. Yeah. So, um, but we, we do, we do try to work on, especially with the dogs, low stress management of them so that they can, and they've learned to trust my dogs, believe it or not. So, um, but I do a lot of like inner species grazing. So lately it's been with, I got chickens during quarantine. And so I've been learning because everybody gets chicken during quarantine. Yes. I've been learning about chicken culture and and we have all these cats, like barn cats. And so the cats and the dogs and the chickens have this little kind of interspecies rhythm going. And we do that like twice a day. And it's been very interesting to see how species can come together and learn about each other and actually grow some trust together. So I've been really closely observing that and noticing like, what is my role in that? And what is it? And what are like, how does it all work? So the, the role that I have, and I use this term and it's called awareness commitment. And when one individual, regardless of species, decides that I am going to keep the balance of our system, I, I'm going to hold that awareness and be the culture setter. That's a commitment. And what it means is I am going to pay attention to where things start to get off balance and attend to it so that they can rebalance themselves. And I'm going to be aware of how everyone's negotiating space and negotiating pressure and navigating needs while we share this experience together. And so that is like from the work that I do and what I've learned from the animals, that is the definition of leadership. So when we're in awareness commitment, you are acting as a leader of the relationships. So when I, if I'm going to ask all those species to share space together that's my role is to be in awareness commitment. And, um, and what's happened is one of my dogs has actually taken on a partnering role with me. So we're doing it together now. And that just emerged organically. And it's my female dog. And she's very much keeping an eye on everyone. And she will intervene if she starts to sense that there's conflict between a chicken and a cat. And she'll just very gently kind of insert herself until things settle and then kind of move back. And she's not, at first I thought she was hurting chickens, but she's not at all. She's actually just managing relationships gently. She's not like, it's not micromanaging. It's just very, it's just, just staying in commitment. So we've been able to, she'll look to me. I'll look to her. I've been videoing all of it because it's been so fascinating and 
I think that this is one of the core problems for people is we actually don't know when we've taken on that role mm. or we don't know when it's needed or we're operating in relationships where no one is taking on that role. And so we're caught by surprise when we get flooded or conflict blows up because no one's really on the lookout for where rebalancing is needed. So how do we change that? I think um, we have to learn first about ourselves, whether it's something that we're good at, whether you're good at it or not. If you exist in a relational system, whether it's two people or five people, or, you know, whether it's your household, your family, you know, it's a couple, a family, a team. Um, we have to be more intentional about having conversations about that and knowing ourselves in terms of what we're up for around awareness commitment. Because I think sometimes there, there are, we either haven't honed that skill or there are people that are a little tone deaf around it that just aren't, it's just not their gift. And so we just have to be more intentional about well, who owns that and then how do we take turns with it so we don't end up in awareness fatigue. And a lot of times I think in human relationships, one person owns it and they never get to go off duty. Yeah. Oh, what happens when you never get to go off duty? Well, you could just pull any mother off the street and ask a question, ask her that question. And she Mm -hmm. will very vividly describe to you what it's like, because I think that's one of like the, the gender problems in our households is that things are set up for women to hold awareness commitment. And oftentimes in teams, it's the same way. There'll be one person who's they're They're given that role. They're never given a break. And they're also not given a voice. They're not empowered to be able to say when something needs rebalancing. So they not only see it and feel it, but then they have to stop it. Oof. So it's a lot of burnout. And resentment, I think a lot of martyr behavior. Um, And then I think the most tragic part of it is that if you are really gifted at that, of noticing those places that need rebalancing, when it's been overused, I think people start to devalue that gift in themselves. And that is really tragic. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we going to do about it? (laughs) Well, that's, uh, I think we have to look at, we have to have these conversations. We have to talk about awareness and awareness commitment and start to practice it. I mean, just any day right now, you know, stop listening to this podcast and go play with it with your people. Mm -hmm. And, um, I watch my horses signal to each other who's on duty and it moves through the herd all day. They only sleep like 20 minutes at a time and not, it's not all they have, they're in shifts so that they can take turns as a herd being in awareness commitment. And so we have to start having those conversations because we have to signal to each other how, how we're going to, um, share that responsibility. How do they signal? Um, one, one horse will start to, um, show there, it always starts with self-care. So they're, 
they're beautiful role models of self-care animals are. They always take care of themselves because they are able to show up and be in service to their group if they're taking care of themselves. If they're not, they're of no use to their animal group. So it usually just starts with the signaling that I'm resting now. I need something. And then whoever is done with that or available shows up and they'll literally, sometimes it, they will all, the one will start to move toward it. And on my pasture, there's, I call it the napping tree and someone will start to head over there to the napping tree. And, um, and then whoever is up for kind of being in the napping space will go. And then whoever's up for watching over them shows up and holds that corner and they, they take turns in that napping place. And there's a rhythm to the day of when that happens. And then when it's time to move out of that, they will come out of their napping and then it just, it just, rhythmically um moves through the day and through the night does it tend to do they cycle through in the same order every day i don't know if i've ever paid attention to that the um i don't know if i've ever paid attention to that i would say probably not because there's other things that affect that like um uh a mare's cycle the time of year, how much light there is during the day, um, temperature, fly control. If like I have a baby in my herd, so where that baby is developmentally. So I don't think so. I think it, that factor of what's going on in our general system that affects our needs and how we take care of each other and how we take care of ourselves. That part is always an element. Do the dogs do it too? Do they, like signals to each other who's in charge? They do. They signal that to each other quite a bit. And there's, um, they're, they're in charge just like the horses of different things. So um, it's, there, there's whatever the group is needing at that time, that individual who's good at that is in charge of that at that moment. And so like my, my young dog, um, who the female who's helping me with the chicken, (laughs) the chicken cat dog integration, she's like the queen of play. And so when like, she will lead the group when that's what's needed in the group. And, um, so it's less about who's in charge, about who's in charge at that time. But they are always looking to me, especially the dogs, less so with the horses, but they're always looking to me. And it's probably because they're around me more, whereas the horses are out being horses. The dogs are with me more. I Um, remember learning at some point that like, you know, so many people think of dogs as having one alpha and mm -hmm. that actually it's different dogs are in charge of different expertise. Yeah, I think the hierarchical, like humans just love inserting hierarchy. It's like fascinating to me. And it does exist, but it does move. It's dynamic. And I think the thing that's most helped me um, learn about this is understanding this more from the standpoint of family. So the dogs are a family of which I am a part. And 
families are about actually about mentoring and about teaching. And so whoever is in like a teaching role or is leading what needs to be learned, like it is the hierarchy is more about what I already know that you don't know yet, that is my service to teach you. And so, and the same thing is true with horses. And I actually do believe that it is also our job as human animals to be in that mindset. So this idea of discipline is super off track because it's really, it it is on track in the word because it comes from disciple, just being a student of, but it's not necessarily how we're viewing it if we're raising children or even in work groups. If we're more experienced and more senior, we're supposed to be mentoring and apprenticing and teaching. Mm-hmm. But that, so the hierarchy gets in the way of all of that because it's about who is making choices for me, um, who has the power to make choices for me versus who's my teacher. And that's such a different mindset. I So I used to study dolphins and killer whales and this is just reminding me of how killer whales and I don't, I didn't study the family structure. I don't know who was teaching, but how they would teach their young to beach, but only on certain beaches. Mm-hmm. Like it depended on the profile of the beach um, to beach as a way to hunt. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but it's all about, it's not like, oh, okay, some of the adults are going to go get food for you. It's, now it's your turn to learn how to do this. Yeah. yeah. And they have to do that. Yeah. They yeah. have to do that. And it's both. Where What can we do with you while you learn so that you can stay safe and so that you can learn about this? Mm-hmm. And that's very much what's happening in a pack of dogs or in a herd of horses all the time. And it's, and it, it, the lessons come just in living and moving through the day versus like training sessions. (laughs) And um, so that's, I mean, I don't, I don't work with my animals in any kind of like training session capacity anymore because I don't believe in it. Um, We're just learning together and relating. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I have a baby horse that, well, he's two now but he was born here and um, we delivered him. It was amazing and, and beautiful. And he's been raised by the herd and um, I haven't really trained him, but he knows how to do all the things that horses that live with people know how to do. He's not been ridden yet because he's not old enough, but um, he's just learned because we're just living and doing things together. And he does it with the other horses and they've supported him and I've supported him and, it's just about mentoring him. And so there's no pressure on him, you know, having to perform in any way. It's just integrating into how we do life. Well, that seems so logical. It's that nice and sense. gentle. Yeah. And yeah. it's less pressure on me. Um, and I think that a lot of times when people are working with animals or when people are parenting children, there's so much pressure to do it a certain way. And then we carry that pressure which then gets transmitted to whoever we're supposed to be teaching. And it's really like too much. It's just too much intensity for any of us to learn or teach or just be in the connection. Yeah. And you mentioned like showing 
the other members of the herd or pack or pod or humans Mm -hmm. that they're safe as they're learning. I think there's a lot of not doing that for humans, especially as adults. A hundred percent. We, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out where the glitch is in our, there's like a, um, I mean, I, I know somewhat where the glitch is that we're able to be in full blown emotional reactivity and trauma brain and still talk and think, make thoughts. Mm. So I know that there's a glitch there, but I don't, I, I, I don't know where in our evolution or in our development that we lost the ability to have safety as a focus and to be able to read each other around safety. And I think it, it's got to be just that the more reliant we've been on language and thought, the less tuned in we are to that part of ourselves. So that's really what my work's been about is trying. It's so funny coming from poetry and language, which is like my my love affair, right, is to say, actually, this is going to get, that's what's going to get us in trouble. We actually have to let go of that and tune into the body to get our signals. And that if we're not in safety, I would say safe enough where we can, where our nervous system can quiet down, we can't learn. You might do the behavior, but you're not integrating it and you won't be able to repeat it effectively. So yeah, I'm, I'm, fascinated by the fact that the human animal is capable of betraying that over and over again around safety. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of people actually, if we were having this conversation with just random people out in public, if we asked them what safety meant to them, I'm really curious if they'd even be able to define it. So how do we know what safety and what lack of safety feel like in our bodies? So I talk about pressure as a phenomenon. Um, And most of the time when, when I use that word, people are talking about, they'll start to talk about stress or overwhelm. But when I'm talking about pressure and really what I try to help people get connected with and the, the horses are they're, I think they're probably herd animals in general are incredibly sensitive to pressure in the environment, in themselves, in the herd. We are not, we don't pay attention to it until it's too late, until we're, we've gone into overwhelm. But when you talk to people about pressure, they only know how to talk about overwhelm and being flooded, which is not safe. And so it's either not safe internally because you're putting so much stress on your body because of what happens in our bodies around our stress response, or it's not safe because of what we're doing externally. And so, or not doing, (laughs) how we're taking care of ourselves or how we're interacting with others. And so pressure on that continuum begins just with a slight change. It's just a shift of energy. A, a change of intention, um, some attention shifting, just it, it's the littlest thing, sh- a shift, just a change. And at that point, when we start to notice the slightest bit of pressure, if we can begin putting our attention there, it's actually most safe because we can adjust with minimal drama. But when we don't, what happens is that pressure without any release 
or change, it becomes tension. And that's kind of the precursor to stress. So then once we have pressure and hold tension, that, that now we're in that zone and it starts to build. And what's happening in our body is all of the hormones, the stress hormones and like increase in adrenaline and cortisol. And that's all ramping up and becoming stress, which then turns into pain and um, pain without any release either goes into numbness or explosion. Those are the options. So if you think about safety, I don't think things, I think things become unsafe once you're heading into tension without release. And that can be sitting in a room with a bunch of people and some, there's an elephant in the room. Like somebody's behaving really poorly and no one's saying anything about it and no one does anything. It can be that, like just that moment, that's the beginning of it. And so then if you, if you fast forward, what happens is everyone checks out and then one person blows up. Mm-hmm. So that's what it would look like on that level. But I think if you, if you look at, well, what's safe, safe is that I'm existing with a commitment to attend to my own pressure so that I actually can make choices for myself and take care of myself and show up. Anything beyond that, we're in kind of an unsafe zone where things might go okay, but I don't know, it might not. And we're, we're, it's just a roll of the dice. How, how can we, like, I guess, what does it mean to take care of our own safety? Let's start there. I think it starts with being aware of our own pressure. Mm-hmm. I think it has to start with I think we want to skip ahead and control our outside world to make it feel safe, or we'll even skip ahead and want to control like our systems to make them safer and more just. And, you know, and I believe in that, but I think it has to start with, am I actually a safe um, caretaker of my own being? And what that means is that when I'm getting feedback from myself or from my interaction with the environment, do I adjust and attend to it? Do I have a absolute radical commitment to doing what I need to, to make sure that my pressure stays at a point that's manageable enough for me to make choices other than reactions? If it's reactions, it's not safe anymore because I'm just, I'm, I'm in survival, but actually making choices. And so I think we have to become more skilled at that. It's a capacity. We just have to get stronger at it. That part gives me a ton of hope. It's like, this is a muscle group to build. This isn't, and it doesn't, it isn't um, like hours and hours of, or hundreds of hours of like deep dive therapy. This is like skill-based and it is in the body. And it's like beginning to learn. I, I did Pilates for years. And when I first started like Pilates on the reformer, um, the machines rather than like mat classes. And it's very precise exercise. And there were muscle groups that I had to learn that get my brain to connect to certain muscle groups that I didn't even know how to access. I didn't know how to trigger or get those muscle groups to fire. But if I, I stayed with it long enough and I learned and that those connections grew between those muscle groups and my brain. 
And the same is true with us. And it's, so it's very practical in that way. And it's, it's very innate. So this is like a part of us that's right there that we're just not utilizing. And that part excites me because it's like our pressure system is just this underutilized capacity and we're not used to using it until it's like using us, like on top of us. So we just have to flip that and get out ahead of it. And then we've got all this information that we didn't have before. And the animals are using it 100% of the time. So that's why you know, when you asked the question about you know, how they've been important, they, they are teachers of that in their honest feedback. They're always helping me connect to that part of myself. Yeah. The animals, well, except for the sheep, the animals are going to do what they got to do. They're going to tell you the second something feels off. Yeah. They're not going to wait until it becomes too much. That's right. And, and I would say they'll tell you when something changes, Mm. it doesn't even have to be off yet. We're like, that's a human piece. They'll just tell you when like a leaf falls and there's no adjustment needed. There's nothing off there. It's just something shifted. They'll tell you whenever something shifts and we can get that nuanced in our attention. And that part is kind of a superpower. And, but we can't have that on all the time. And that's why we have to have people around us that we can take turns with so that we don't have to be using that awareness channel all the time and fatigue it. You yeah. need to be able to rest it. That gets exhausting. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go numb. Mm. Or Say, we'll seek, seek numbness. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. Say more about that, please. Well, it's really painful to overuse any part of us. It's like physical, emotional, spiritual, relational it's, it becomes painful. So that pressure continuum gets into the point of pain and it starts to hurt us in some way. And so if we are struggling to turn that off and we can't, like for me, I didn't know how to turn that part of me off. And I didn't know how to ask for, to have awareness partners. And I didn't, I didn't have enough support and I didn't, it was like, I just, what can I do to turn this off? And, um, so I, you know, I'm a sober, sober person in recovery for many years now, but there was a period in my life where, you know, I would, I would drink and that would start to turn that down. Like that awareness channel was so strong and on, and it was too much. And I didn't have coping you know, I didn't have coping mechanisms, I didn't have support, I didn't know, I was, I was abusing my own awareness superpower. And so I would numb. And I used uh, paying attention to other people as a way to numb. And I used um, my intellectual, I used like thinking as a way to numb that part of me. So I had a lot of different strategies of numbing that. Yeah, if we didn't, you're yeah, a we pro. I was a pro. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you were really good at numbing. <laughs> Very good at numbing. Very good at numbing. And, you know, there's, I've started this practice, I don't know, 10 years ago called wall staring. And 
like I, it isn't always at the wall, but like now what I do when I feel like I just need to like, like let the awareness pieces down is like find a place where I can just go be. And I'm not meditating. I'm not working on myself. I'm not interacting. I'm just sitting. And so it's like wall staring. Like I'm just going to stare at the wall for a while. I totally yeah. feel you on that. I do ceiling staring. Oh, it's the best. And you know, it's, um, there was this episode on Seinfeld where Elaine was dating this guy named Putty and they took an international flight and she brought all these things to read and he brought nothing and he was just going to stare at the seat in front of him and she could not understand it. And she broke up with him on the spot because that was like the worst strategy ever was to just sit and do nothing. And, but I do, I actually really give myself a lot of permission for that. And sometimes I go out with my herd, with the horses and I'll go do that with them and I'll go graze, which is just walking with them as they're moving about foraging or when they're at the napping tree, I'll go be with them. And, um, but really looking for, for opportunities for that. But I also use that out loud where like, I need to turn, I need to turn my awareness off now. And, um, and when I'm working with people, like I need you to take over and it's, like, I think one of the most loving acts that others give me is leading when I can't anymore or don't want to, when I, my, my time is done. We do it all the time on the trail with the horses is like, let them take turns with that. Cause it's a, it's a lot of pressure to hold, to lead the herd. And, um, it's so loving. I feel so cared for when someone else steps up and I can just lean back and breathe. I used to not know how to receive that. Yeah. How did you learn to receive that? Kicking and screaming. (laughs) (laughs) It felt so unsafe. It was so hard for me. I had to do a lot of my own trauma work um, because I didn't, I, you know, I was kind of raised by wolves. I didn't, there wasn't a person in awareness commitment. And so I have, you know, a lot of bad stuff happened because of it. So it was really hard for me to learn how to trust in that way and to learn how to, how to assess whether somebody is trustworthy and, um, and to let my body be able to let go. And I had to do a lot of my own work. Mm. Yeah. We can intellectualize that. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, it's just another person. You love this person. It's safe, but the body might have a different opinion. I knew how to do it with the animals. So I had a template mm-hmm. and I had to make a bridge from the people to the, from the animals to the human animals. That was the hardest for me. I knew I could trust the animals, the other animals. So I knew how to lean on them, but the world of people, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. That was a lot harder. So I did a lot of EMDR work. Um, Ultimately, that was a game changer for me. After lots of talk therapy, that was a game changer for me. And body work was in the body, Mm -hmm. in the nervous system. Yeah. Do you help people with that? Yeah, I, I got trained in EMDR. And the work that I do with the horses is very somatic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm. I don't like this question, but I started asking it. So I'm going to go ahead. Can we, like, how much can we, 
Well, let's just talk about safety. Like how safe can we really feel if we don't address our bodies? If we don't address our bodies. Oh, yeah. well, just back to that question about how we define safety. If you don't have access to the information of your body, then you're not safe. So if you're not connected with your body, if you aren't aware of your body, you can't feel safe. Correct. Yeah. Our thinking brain, we trust it a bit more than I believe we should. Hmm. Yeah. I don't. You don't trust it? No. Oh, yeah. Well, people, when I say we, maybe it's not you and me, but but the human herd puts a lot of trust and faith in, and if you've ever done a thought record, (laughs) which I have, and uh, in my recovery work, I've done a lot of cognitive behavioral thought records for shits and giggles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not really a big cognitive behavioral therapist and never, but I did work in hospital settings. And so I know those tools and there've been times in my life where I've done some thought work and, um, and then in my recovery work, there was a lot of inventorying, trying to look for themes. And then that comes up in trauma work as well. So there's, I've really been able to look at like what goes on in this little mind of mine and it's comical, like the, it is. Um, and so I think, but when we're putting that much trust in our thoughts as the main source of our signals and we don't, we might get signals from our body, but we don't, we're not fluent in interpreting them and knowing what to do with them and actually listening to them, following Mm -hmm. through with that. That seems to be, um, we may luck out once in a while and our body tells us something and we respond and like, look at that, it worked out, but it's not like a daily, hourly relationship with the same way that we the animals do and that we're actually built and hardwired to use our body and its signals. Yeah, I agree completely. Like how many times have you had to go to the bathroom and you're like, Oh, I'll just wait. I'm really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really good at that too. And it's like, how funny is that? Like your body, your body is telling you it's feeling pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's full. And it's telling you, it's sending a signal and you're like, no, no, <laughs> no, no. And then it's like, it keeps sending you a signal and then it starts to get painful. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, no. <laughs> you're like, body, no, we're past, all these gas stations are super sketchy. You gotta <laughs> hold on. <laughs> or I need to answer one more email yeah. or I don't want to interrupt this person mm-hmm. or I want to do this social nicety. So I'm going to wait or yeah. Like, a lot of reasons why we do it but and that's a whole lot of reason for us our body to be like what if why are you listening to me this is the simplest thing i'm asking for you and that if it if we were to listen to it what else like what how much more efficient can our body be if we're actually responding to the pressures because Mm -hmm. it can only hold so much pressure And so if that's one of them, that's one source of pressure. And then there's all these others that we're not attending to. We're loading it up unnecessarily. Yeah. It's very interesting. (laughs) The human animal is, is just a, like a fascinating subject. You were hilarious. 
I know. That's the only way I can see us as we're just funny. I think that other animals think that we're quite comical. I do too. I see my dog laugh at me sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I laugh with him and I'm like, yes, I know. That was silly. That was very (laughs) silly of me. (laughs) Beth, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to cover? I don't think so. No, this has been delightful. Oh, God. One, maybe two more questions for you then. Okay. If you had a billboard, you can put anywhere, you can make it look however you want, but the whole world can see it. What would it say? Hmm. How many, how many sentences? Oh, as many as you want. It's a magical billboard. You are not limited by (laughs) space. It's a magical billboard. What a great question. Um, I think that it would say, you are a human animal. Wake up your animal body and deeply experience your life. Mm. That is beautiful i'm not going to ask you the other question i want to end on that i want to know the other question (laughs) the other question okay it's what's the scariest thing you you've ever done oh get sober that one was too easy for you (laughs) (laughs) because of my billboard because waking up my whole self was so scary and um I was so scared of what I was going to see and I was so scared of how I was going to live and be fully awake. And I knew I had all these sensitivities and I didn't know how I was going to use them and take care of them and cope with them. And I didn't know how to have really properly have support. And so I'm coming up on 12 years sober. So I got sober while I was already a therapist. So I had tools, but I didn't really know how to deeply use them. And waking up spiritually and emotionally and in the body wholly, like that whole self waking up is like walking out of a matinee movie without sunglasses and you've been in the dark and you come out and you're squinting and everything feels off. And it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And I think that's why we don't do it. Yeah, of course. Terrifying is not feeling safe. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. How did you do it? Well, that's the great thing. And I think it goes back to that pressure piece, which was like, I could handle the pressure of that if I did it one day at a time. And Mm -hmm. so I learned how to attend to my own little, I mean, I was, a licensed therapist and I did not know what self-care was. Mm. And so I learned every day to take care of myself. Like very, like I wasn't like living under a bridge or like I, I was, I, I could have, I'm sure gotten to that point at some point in life, but like I was like high functioning with my drinking, but I did not know how to properly take care of myself. So one day at a time, I learned how to take care of those pressures and adjust and put another day together and another day together. And, and so each day felt safe 
And before I knew it, I could look back and say, like, I am safely taking care of myself now. And then I started to feel safe. So that was, that was magic. That one day at a time that you hear people talk about in recovery, like, and I rolled my eyes at became like, I understood what that was. And you can't take like, how am I going to build a whole life like that? That goes into too much pressure, but one 24 hours I can handle. Mm. So, yeah. So much wisdom for whatever it is yeah. that you're healing from or yes. doing in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Just one thing at a time and um, one pressure at a time, adjusting one pressure at a time. And then that will show you what's needed next. Mm. And um that's like, I've lived by that since. And it's really, really helped me. And it's exactly how the animals live. I mean, it really synced up nicely. I was like, oh, that's what they're doing. Like what, how did, how did I get so far away from that? Because you're human. Yes. And, and that's what we do. We're ridiculous. (laughs) We're ridiculous. (laughs) Well, we have these very powerful brains and they, are very busy and creative and industrious and they can Mm -hmm. get out ahead of us out of the whole self. And it's just like running down a hill. If you get going too fast, you kind of like gravity takes over and you fall flat on your face and like our, our beautiful humanness can do the same thing. Absolutely. It's like you can use that creativity to write poetry or, and, or, to make up lots and lots and lots of stories and scenarios and all that this stuff. That make you feel anxious. And yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, thank you so much for this. Thank How can people you. learn more about you? Maybe come visit you? Um, so my you? ranch is in, I live on a ranch and um, with my horse herd and the dogs and the sheep and the chickens and cats and my human family and it's in the Bay area in California. So San Francisco, San Jose Bay area. And, um, you can look me up. The website is the circleupexperience.com. So my business is called the circle up experience. And we do all kinds of work with people, individuals, couples, families, teams. I work with large corporations and nonprofits and, teachers, first responders, groups of all kinds. I just, I love human groups. So um, yeah. And I do some work remotely. So I have an online platform called the Circle Up School. And so I have ongoing classes offered there. So I'm about to do one of my topics that's like my um, a passion project from for life is um, the study of boundaries, healthy boundaries. So I have a boundary boot camp course, and then um, I have a resilience course as well. So those are two things that I do. And then I work with students longer term in a cohort program that is a nine month program. So I do those things as well. Awesome. And we're going to put all your web links in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank this you so much. So wonderful. Thank you. All right. That was fun. As always, please head over to Apple Podcasts 
to rate and review this podcast. I would really appreciate that. Please share this episode with everyone you think will enjoy it. And if you're interested in digging deeper into your human design, come play at kelseyabbott.com. You can poke around on the work with me page and, and, or go to kelseyabbott.com slash human design to book a human design reading. And we start from there and then all sorts of magic just comes forth. And of course, we've also got free meditations are still available at kelseyabbott.com slash meditations and core class is still happening on Saturdays. You can actually get the meditations and the core class under the play tab on my website. So again, go check out the newly refreshed kelseyabbott.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Find Your Awesome podcast. I love you. Go forth and be awesome.